Hello, this is Rachel Zucker, and this is episode 55 with poet Anne Waldman. I met with Anne Waldman at her West Village apartment on May 6th, 2018. It was the day after a three-day symposium on Allen Ginsberg, which included a panel that both Waldman and I participated in, as well as a three-hour workshop that Anne taught and that I had the pleasure of taking as a student. Most of you listening will have heard of Ann Waldman before. She is the author of over 40 publications, including Fast Speaking Woman and the multi-volume epic The Eovis Trilogy. Trickster Feminism, her latest book, is just out from Penguin. Ann Waldman is known for creating work that extends beyond the page. And in addition to her books, she's created many films, videos, and sound recordings. Waldman was one of the founders of the St. Mark's Church Poetry Project and served as director for over a decade. In 1974, alongside Allen Ginsberg and Diane DePrima, Waldman founded the Jack Kerouac School of Disembodied Poetics at the Naropa Institute in Boulder, Colorado, where she is currently director of the MFA Writing and Poetics Program. I'd heard Ann Waldman read many times, and I'd read her work since I was a teenager. She'd appeared in several of my poems, and there's a terrific essay about Waldman by Kristen Prevole in an anthology I edited called Women Poets on Mentorship. But I'd never had the opportunity to talk in person with Ann Waldman before this past conversation. Anne was generous about agreeing to meet with me, despite having just flown in from one place and about to fly out to another. She was enthusiastic, warm, wonderfully energetic. Occasionally, I had trouble keeping up with Anne's incredible mind. Her life, her thoughts, her forms are irrepressible. Indeed, even the lavalier mic, which perhaps I did not place particularly well, picks up Anne's movement and energy. I came to realize that I was not going to get to ask questions in an orderly fashion. In addition to Anne's leaps and to my own meandering, partway through our conversation, people started showing up for a reading that was scheduled in the downstairs space. In order to reach this reading space, people joyfully greeted Anne and then crossed through the room in which we were recording. It was surprising and disconcerting to me at the time, although later, re-listening to the recording, I realized that Anne and I were never alone. We were interrupted, visited, joined, and kept company by ideas, spirits, beings, words, the past, perhaps the future, embodied and disembodied from the moment we sat down together and long past the moment when I turned off the mics. It was a delightfully disorderly experience and unlike the other conversations I've recorded. There are always questions I wish I'd asked missed opportunities that plague me for days or weeks after I record a commonplace conversation. And this is particularly true about my time with Anne. I wish I'd asked her more specific questions about motherhood, about her daily life and process, about being a woman in mostly male-dominated groups, about her current activism, about what she plans to do next, but it was not within my ability to direct this conversation, to bend time and content to my will. And perhaps that's just as it should be. I learned so much being with Anne, especially that being, being with Anne and being itself, sometimes feels like holding on to a comet, traveling through time, 
and that being itself is a gift, an effort, a wild ride. To learn more about Anne Waldman and for links to some of the people and texts we discuss in this episode, visit commonpodcast.com. Also, if you can, please consider becoming a patron of Commonplace. Commonplace is made by myself and three part-time producers. We need to hire an apprentice and we are committed to paying a living wage. We have no corporate sponsorship or institutional support. We are entirely funded by patrons and my, as of yet, unpaid labor. If you're already a patron, thank you. For this episode, our wonderful patrons will get access to a long conversation with me and Kava Akbar recorded for a special event at Poets House. This event was part of the launch of an anthology called Women of Resistance, Poems for a New Feminism, co-edited by Daniela Barnhart and Iris Mayhan. This fabulous anthology contains work by many commonplace guests, including Ann Waldman, Jericho Brown, Tahimba Jess, Christopher Soto, Kava Akbar, and myself. Danielle Barnard, a commonplace listener and patron, had reached out to Kava and me and asked if we would be interested in revisiting our commonplace conversation and especially going into greater depth about our thoughts about power dynamics in poetry. Danielle and Iris, with the support of Adelphi University's MFA program, organized an event at Poets House on May 2nd. Because there were several interruptions and the downstairs reading called to Anne, this is a shorter episode than most. Right after the conversation with Anne, I've included a short excerpt of the conversation between Kava and myself that patrons will be able to access in its entirety. Patrons will also get access to a PDF of Kristen Prevalet's essay about Anne Waldman from Women Poets on Mentorship, co-edited by myself and Ariel Greenberg. Patrons will be entered into our raffle, which includes Anne Waldman's Trickster Feminism, courtesy of Penguin, Nightwood by Juna Barnes, courtesy of New Directions, Wait Till I'm Dead, Uncollected Poems of Allen Ginsberg, edited by Bill Morgan, published by Grove Press, and Women of Resistance, Poems for a New Feminism, co-edited by Barnard and Mahan and published by O.R. Books, courtesy of the editors. Thank you so much, Penguin, New Directions, all the publishers that send us books for our raffles and for review. And now, here's Ann Waldman. West Village, and um, it's the day after this uh, three-day Ginsburg Symposium. Um, I got to be on a panel with you, and I got to take your workshop yesterday, which was incredible. Um, I was so happy to see you there. Oh, it was it was a delight, and I have many questions about it. But I, unfortunately, I was not able to hear Alice Notley last night, um, and I so. Yeah, I just, that was wonderful. Well, yeah, it was wonderful. She had a had made a random selection of Allen's poems by some sort of system, and they all touched on aspects of him. And the overall theme had to do with Allen as an international poet it, with international concerns. Mm. With had reached um, you know far reaches all over the world, and I can testify to that because when he died, there were memorials, ceremonies from Japan to India to Italy to very, you know, France, all over Europe, um, and requests for 
you know, people to come or acknowledge uh, Alan in their mm -hmm. way and let us know that they were honoring him. It was quite extraordinary. I've never seen that kind of outpouring for a poet in our more um, experimental, political, radical scene. If it's a scene at all, the so she it was brilliant. She was oh. it was a it was performative. Mm -hmm. She was reading from the poem. She was making this point about Alan and metrics and the way he worked. Um, uh, she knew him, of course. So there, there were you know intimate moments and exchanges that she had had with him. Um, she covered not she could didn't really cover his life. That wasn't the point. But in through the poems, you you got a sense of the breadth of where he is and still is and travels. And I was delighted because the opening night, um, which featured some wonderful younger poets, that was very exciting. But I wasn't sure they how, not that one, the, the, the symposium was really about Ginsburg. We were not talking um, and doing individual presentations on Alan. Alan was the trigger for a lot of the themes, one could say. And um, so, I felt the opening night there, Alan was kind of there. You brought him into the mm -hmm. panel, of course. Um, but I'm not sure how, how much people, younger people are reading Alan. Yeah. So that, I felt that last night it was a very good crowd and a lot of the younger people were there, that it was a sort of wake up call to taking a new look or seeing this aspect, which she was principally presenting. So I, I found it uh, very invigorating and inspiring to my, you know, my own practice mm -hmm. and thinking about Alan in various ways. I had, I had planned to talk about him more at the panel uh -huh. and to talk specifically about these places where we interconnected in other parts outside our usual, they've never been comfort zones, I don't know what to call them, <laughs> but from getting arrested to rock, at Rocky Flats to the poem that he was writing, the Plutonian Ode to um, our trip with Bob Dylan's Rolling Thunder Review, which was an adventure, and then his his uh, incredible modesty in mm. that. I think that you used the phrase you you just spoke about him um, for a second in the present tense, and I was wondering whether your relationship with him continues to change, and in and whether in the, in something like this symposium, whether you continue to have sort of new uh observations about him or about your relationship with him like when you write about him or when you hear you know alice talk about him or i was just curious about that or whether it feels like it is really in the past well naropa still goes on and so and i'm connected primarily in the summers and i have a sense of my historical memory isn't great, but we, of course we have our audio archive, and there's a sense of the the whole project that mm -hmm. starts with us and Diane and others that for those early summers. So there's reflection on that. I need to write about it with more depth and research at this point. But how how far have we gone accomplishing certain uh, visions that we had mm. within this? I would say contemplative context. And we've struggled to keep going, to survive. We've had some rough years of late with the shift in economy, with the um, demands of 
you know, younger people who can afford to go live in Boulder, Colorado, or Denver, Colorado, or mm -hmm. anywhere, really, and go into debt. We don't have enough scholarships. And so we continue to build and progress. Um, people come and go. But Alan is always <laughs> there <laughs> in, in the bigger picture of mm -hmm. it. So, I, th so that's a way of, of uh, being locate, locating with him and thinking about the, uh, you know, when you're founding a school, there's a different process than doing a magazine or something with a shorter lifespan. <clears throat> and with our, our common Buddhist, you know, interest, passion, being students of that practice, thinking about it, talking about it, that also is something that continues. Mm -hmm. And Alan's particular insight and gifts of, of how he would articulate his understanding and practice are, are very much with me. I don't feel I have to correct the record or defend him mm -hmm. or, you know, whether it's going to man-boy love or his various, they're not even escapades. So I have, I have a, um, I would say a larger, more macroscopic view of, of the man, his intensities, his, his uh, concerns, his deep, you know, empathy and generosity, his curiosity of his being really like a, a, well, he was such an activist. So he was coming in with, whether it was to legalize marijuana or expose issues of the Vietnam War. He was, re, he was researching all the time. He kept voluminous files mm. on these trouble spots and, and trying to understand the skiamakis, the shadow wars and the, the plots behind the plots, the sub sub uh, you know, things that were not easily ascertained. So that kind of uh, field poet, um, constantly on, restlessly, restlessly, urgently pursuing the truth. So in terms of now, I just wish he were around, yeah. <laughs> along with William Burroughs, in fact, there, who was Thersites tongued. William had such a a, a wonderful gift with uh, the language that would apply was applying, of course, to the times he was in, and would really apply now. So I see, you know, some of their work as prophecy, as um, kind of um, it's never ending. We're in a continuum. Who knows where it's all headed? But in terms of figures who were extremely um, Awake and aware. Well, they're all their idiosyncrasies were uh, really on the job, mm -hmm. on the job as I see it. So I identify with that, being on the job, being um, trying to probe a little deeper. I don't know. I don't know quite how to articulate it in a in a way that's is powerful, perhaps at times. I love that you said uh, you don't feel like you have, you need to correct the record. I wonder if there was there anything that you wish that that had been said, particularly at this moment, that has to do with Alan um, at the symposium that that nobody said or that nobody mentioned, and maybe it's nothing. Um, well, it's always interested me how he went to India as a seeker, looking for teachers, looking for some kind of enlightenment, looking for practice. I was also. Before I even before I knew Alan, drawn to Buddhist, you know, philosophy for want of a better word, psychology, 
at studying um, religion in high school, finding out about Hinduism and Taoism and Buddhism and different kinds of Buddhism, you know, whether it was from Cambodia or Thailand or Tibet or China or Japan, experiencing going, you know, meeting Zen teachers from a fairly, I think I met Trungpa before Alan did actually. I went up to visit his center in Vermont in 1980, when was it, 70? And I remember telling Alan about it. He was very inquisitive about it. Well, are they sitting, facing a blank wall? Are you uh, in proper meditation posture? How strict is it? How loose? At the time, it was somewhat loose because people, he, you know, Trungpa was teaching um, all these raw Americans in the 70s, no less, mm. people coming off the 60s and so on. So Alan was very curious about the particulars of the practice. and. But in any case, he went. He was India in the India in the '60s. He went back to Jessore Road. He traveled there at other times as well. But he brought um, mantra into political activism. I find that really fascinating. I, it's not to say that mantra hasn't been used in that way with uh, people in in you know in that culture in different ways, but that he picked up on that so voraciously. And it became part of his sound, part of his, you know, these seed syllables in him. And he understood that they were, there were different ways to pacify, different ways to magnetize, different ways to calm mm. a crowd by chanting Om. So, and at the time he was, pro I think, probably ridiculed. I don't remember. I remember in the occasions where this was happening, people seemed grateful. But that was um, curious. Mm -hmm. you know, it seems almost surreal, hmm. At, and I know that the you know the Greek meters took people into battle, da 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 da, and so the way he brought these worlds together is fascinating. And sometimes our activities seem to compartmentalize. You know, I'm going to do tithe my time here. I'm involved with this particular issue, social political issue. This is when I'm just a poet. This is when I'm um, in retreat mode. This is when I'm doing a scholarly project. Uh, this is when I'm working with translation. So this this way that he embodied all these things. So it wasn't the disembodied school of poetics. It was the embodied school. And I guess I you know there's more to say about his his um, Buddhist practice and certain vows you take as a uh, refugee. It's mm -hmm. called the refugee vow, which would be interesting to talk about in light of the migrant question. I mean, it's there's a privilege to being able to have the uh, perspicacity and also the situation to be able to even recognize I'm taking refuge in this. I'm giving up my personal territory, my personal expectation, my theism. To, so I'm taking. I am. I come into this, opening my mind to a, a vow to work on for many lifetimes to benefit others and that sort of thing. So Alan very much had that mm. um, thing in him to to do, and it it became more. You know, you felt the fruition. He had already been so effective in uh, political ways and in bringing poetry into public space into communication with other poets of other cultures. That's what was so important in the 
conversation last night. But I guess the focus, and there's been focus on his travels in India. There's his own Indian journals. Mm -hmm. There are his um, diary, uh, you know, notebooks and so on. There are poems which are filled with his, with uh, Sanskrit terminology and place names and and so on. He, um, so he was well, his first trip he was very much a uh, seeker and like a, you know, like a baby student and testing the waters and hanging out at the ghats at Calcutta. Um, but he had written Hal at that point. So he had that uh, armor in a way, but also his entree. And he, would, he wanted everybody to hear Hal. He, he wanted to read it to the Dalai Lama. Um, he, he, sort of to? He, yeah, he got to read, I believe, parts of it. Wow. And um, so he, he was already acknowledged in his own culture as a uh, interventionist and, and he's, you know, all the way Time magazine or Life magazine would depict the, the um, unwashed and the wild and sex crazed and mm -hmm. drug crazed beatings. But he, he was a living testament to, yes, curiosity about these things, but also, and part of the liberation that was going on in many places but also all these other things. So that was nice this weekend to get a sense of that, but also not to correct any record, but to expand it, right. I guess, would be how I see it. And, but I would it would be interesting to have the conversation about where we're uh, at at this point with the much more extreme climate issues since his death, the situation with nuclear, um, Black market nuclear stuff, as well as the way it's been, you know, coming back as, a, um, you know, a threat, a player, and I mean, it always will be. It was always a great privilege to travel with Alan, sometimes accompanied by others. I mean, I remember being with Alan and William, and that was exciting because of the contrast of, of styles. And so you'd be in a cab in, I don't know, Montreal, Toronto, somewhere, and Alan would be grilling the driver about the local politics, about what was going on, what was coming up, any referendums, what were people thinking, and William completely quiet, just staring out the window with his, you know, his kind of steely look and absorbing a lot and taking a lot of it in and, and also listening to what, mm. what the uh, documentary conversation was. And Alan could retain so much, he was so smart. That way, very good at facts. And Can I ask you yes. about uh, two questions about you? One is, do you feel like you're at a moment in your life where you can now um, identify with what it might have been like for Alan to have been? Oh yeah, that's that, been going, that yeah. publicity oh, yeah, and yeah. how how does how? Cause, no, of course cause that's the, been going on for yeah, a while. Yeah, so now I've, you are. Well, so I had to known. take the mantle to some extent and represent uh -huh. the. Naropa vision and continuing to travel and to places where he had been or was known. Uh, he was, for example, this program in Vienna, the Schule für Dichtung, which is not a, it, it's more of an online program, but it began um, probably in the 80s when we were there. And at one point I was curating something over there. But of course, Alan had, had come there. So, mm -hmm. you know, taking our, our style of uh, teaching 
even teaching Buddhist meditation on occasion was um, interesting to you know to see how that could work. And I remember one some young student asking for meditation instruction and there's a procedure where you ask three times so Alan made and we were in a restaurant mm. a very noisy restaurant so this young person had to ask three times and then Alan would give it so you know certain protocols and rituals he he assumed the posture of the teacher and somebody but it was always to benefit the person he wasn't trying to um, or to inspire them to match his intellectual curiosity do you feel like it's different uh, for you in part across gender? Like someone, oh, absolutely. Yes. No, no, no. And I had to struggle with that. And I had yeah. to struggle with those guys and with the New York school guys and with the beat guys. No, I'm, I'm sounding very laudatory as if it was an easy <laughs> uh, relationship. It wasn't always easy. Not, I never had problems with Alan once, you know, once he was... Right, but right not there, even present. with them. Like yeah, someone yeah. said to me the other day, no one likes an angry woman. <laughs> like there's there, and I do feel in my in my own work and presentation and teaching that there are different expectations and rules yes, and of course. for women than there are for men. Right, that's shifting. I uh -huh. think we've put up a great fight. Um, there's so many strong women writers. I felt part of you know this first wave of the second generation, et cetera, with Bernadette Mayer, Alice Notley, and others. Um, Diane and DePrima and Joanne Kiger were senior to us, but they were also, you know, bringing, moving it along, moving it forward a few inches. Mm -hmm. And um, no, that's, that's a given. Yeah. That's a given. It's not always been easy, and you don't get the same kind of attention. Uh, we were equal partners in the Naropa founding and so on and, and including Diane in the early years but you know Alan often they would speak about Alan is the founder of the Jack Kerouac school and that's an obvious error if you're not looking at the the history and and the uh, and the name of course Kerouac that was something we fussed about whether that was an apt title Kerouac uh -huh. however had experienced the first noble truth of suffering and he had he was so good at the epiphany moments and um and seeing through, have, having this sense of illusion through uh, the phenomenal world and so on. So it was very appropriate. Mm. But there were jokes about calling it the Gertrude Stein School later. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> because of her mental attention yeah. know, to time and the, and the um, details of, of language in you know, time and space and a breadth of work. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to talk about Gossamermer, um, which is incredible, and I'm so uh, thrilled oh, that I got you. a chance to read it. And the smallest little detail in there was you mentioned early on uh, Patch and Place, which is where I grew up. Oh, my goodness. And I just had this moment as a reader. I mean, there were so many connections and, and like sparks that were going off for me Amazing. all over the place. Judah Barnes. So I, I saw... <laughs> This is a sad memory, but I saw Juna Barnes carried out mm. oh in her goodness. in her body bag. Oh, oh my goodness! Um, and so I was just, and I just was the idea that you were, 
you know, here and in such close proximity. But I, of course, I didn't know you then. Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. that you, we were both um, t connected to this woman. Where were you going to school? You're so, younger than I am. So, yeah, I, I grew up in number 10 Patchen Place. Okay. So across the street from her. Right, right. Amazing. And I went to Corlears. Um, oh, yes. for But just for nursery school and two years of kindergarten. I had to do kindergarten again. I uh -huh. didn't perform well. <laughs> um, and then my parents made this horrible decision to send me to a yeshiva on the Upper East Side. Oh, yes. So right. I basically spent all my time like commuting from first grade to eighth grade uh -huh. up there. Um, but I mean, that's where I grew up. That's where I spent Amazing. my, I didn't know my that. time. Yeah. Oh, Judith Barnes in a body bag. Well, I would just I see know. her on the street I was I had some kind of French lessons I don't know if that's noted in the book and my mother would take me to a place um, right on 6th Avenue uh -huh. and that's where we'd see her wow. and I mean it was right in the neighborhood yeah. of course amazing and I of course loved Nightwood when I first read it probably in college I must have been 18 mm. 17 or 18 and I used to teach that book I had a course on women's women writers mm. who were so uh, extraordinary. So that's an extraordinary book. I, um, so you wrote Goss Gossip Murmur was published in 2013, I right. think, right? And you know, it's impossible for me to read it now and imagine <laughs> it before the current administration. Yes. And yes. you know, there for people who haven't read it, you should read it. And um, but there are, you know, there's the character of the original Anne, the true Anne, and then these deciders um, right. and the archive, um, right. which we spoke a tiny bit about at the symposium. But I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about the deciders and the archive and um, I mean, this book felt in conversation in some small ways um, to me with de the descent of Alette. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, and yet it's very different in form, um, mm -hmm. and, but feels like incredibly relevant right this moment. Yeah, I would agree. Yeah, could you talk about it a little bit? Well, I'm trying to think how it all, some of it came off this this urgency I feel about the, in particular, the Naropa Archive, the mm. St. Mark's Poetry Project Archive, which was also unclear where it would reside. It's with the Library of Congress with Wonderful. an understanding, I think, for future care. But it's been very slow getting it up and running. The, Is it the audio? Poetry Project, audio. Okay. Well, we also have video. We started okay. videotaping in the 80s, so there's a number of videotapes. But the audio has been the focus because of the earlier material, some of which is on reel-to-reel and thinking about how it will go. Lots, almost all of it at Naropa has been digitized up until the recent summers. Mm. We particularly tape everything in the summers. And so we have these little cassettes. And at the, at the time when the sort of, I don't know what hit me, the inspiration for this book, I wanted it to be an allegory. I wanted to kind of call out some of these obstacles as I saw them to the progression of the vision of archive. I wanted mm -hmm. to examine other archives from the, and there's the whole you know, list and the kind of index of particular ways that things have been saved and rescued from the Jal-Afna marketplace in Marrakesh to the seed vault in Norway to the book Archive Fever by um, Derrida and the, the um, 
sort of view of that is as being a kind of death art. You know, we sort of have an archive to stave off death and just ex deconstructing a bit the notion of archive and what it is. And of course, it, whatever it is, is changing. Yeah. And you have to work with the technologies, particularly with the audio. And, and uh, when I decided to, years ago, go to uh, University of Michigan, the Hatcher Graduate Library there, and they have the, this incredible Labadee collection, which is the anarchist collection, definitive in the world, and they have um, various writers and film people from Altman now to um, Oscar Wilde. And when I visited their collection and went to see some of the laboratories, they were, they were preserving papyrus. Oh, so that wow. was, you know, that was a, uh, I thought, okay, if they can take care of papyrus, <laughs> I'm, I'm down for this. And I, you know, and I love the politics of the place, and Michigan was so important as the, you know, Huron Statement with Tom Hayden and the, a lot of the SDS work. Not that I had gone there. I had no actual connection. Uh, Donald Hall was at mm. Ann Arbor a number of years, and then Ted Berrigan and, um, well, Frank O'Hara had gone there, and so there was the... Hopwood, anyway, some history there. But it, it was kind of, all these things were coming on at once. And I was, unfortunately, there was somebody, I think, on our board at Naropa who, because it's a contemplative based school with this backdrop of Buddhist psychology and philosophy and so on, and other traditions coming in as well, had said something like, well, it's all about impermanence anyway. What's, you know, what's the point of the archive? And then I had to remind them, I'm so, you know, I'm so glad that these bits of papyrus uh, with Sappho poems survived the, yeah. you know, being mummy cartonage. I'm so happy that these little bits of uh, recorded voice of uh, Mayakovsky and Antonin Artaud and Gertrude Stein and others are preserved because these are like, like mantra in a way or like, um, you know, things you can't really articulate exactly how, how the, the efficacy of how it all works, but they wake you up. When I heard Mayakovsky, I got, you know, flashed on the whole time and the, what, what he was, uh, and this is in Russian, of course, um, but Alan had had some of those, I remembered in early Naropa gathering. So I'm nervous about the, in particular, the Naropa archive I think the poetry project was had already been solved. Not to mention one's own things that you want to keep um, going for others. Mm -hmm. That was the impulse. You might hear this too and get as excited and and um, also the the whole what it means to to have vo to voice poetry. So I, the deciders were these people who thought it was all impermanent anyway, or they were wanting to have control, and it was a. It, a joke in a way. Who cares about poetry's archive ultimately, uh. except the poets and the scholars? Um, so that kind of came together, and then there was the whole, uh, you know, bringing in uh, images from these other past times and cultures in the mind of the poet. All times are contemporaneous. I had a lot of fun with that. I had a sense of being divided in this and being the, you know, it was. I wanted to be the original Anne who was working hard and trying to, you know, doggedly carry on and continuing to believe in this. And then the, the, the factotum Anne, who was more of a trickster. Mm. So on the, what are the other elements in there? There's diversions. To, we go to India, where right. I was working in Morocco, those, I think, right around that period. A couple of trips over there. Um, 
And then I wanted to quote those, actually, they're actually quotations from the oral ar archive that, that fit together with some of the themes. So, you know, there are a lot of different strands there, but I, I felt this book has a kind of narrative continuity that works. It's an adventure story, and even though it's ridiculous to think of rescuing the archive and putting it in the tundra, that was another, and that was very um, meaningful to me to invoke the tundra because I live close to tundra when I'm out in Colorado. When I first went out there, that was one of the more amazing um, biospheres that one can inhabit, going above the tree line, seeing the fragility of these tiny little plants that won't live beyond a couple of weeks. Mm -hmm. And um, so that, but that idea of, of the, the, um, the little things that you care for and you tend, and even though they might only live a few weeks, that can't played in. Um, Do you want to read a, sure, a, just a tiny great. bit, just to get it into the, into the oral sure, space? I'd love to. You can read whatever you want. I, okay. I, I, I start a fa some favorite pages, but okay. whatever. Sure, I'll whatever read this. You. I like this part. The deciders took Anne apart, organ by organ, sinew by sinew. And they copied these parts into the husk of the new Anne with skill and dark intent. As they did this, they would pause, mewling into their sinister autopsy. Little organ of original Anne, what can you do for us now? Little eyes of original Anne, what will you accomplish now? And you sinews that bind operation of motion, where walk you now? Tongue that composed many ballads and odes for your time, how will you sing? They gloated in their desire to reveal the nothingness of all things and to murder poetry. They could not remove or mutate her consciousness, which stayed intact in the retreat and isolation of the original Anne. They made their copy a mockery of original Anne, undoing the mana of original Anne, who they cast into a virtual prison while they went about their plot of alienating humans from their linguistic natures. Language would become separated, torn from its vital dwelling place. Humans would be living out history and a life of unrelenting state without poetry. The archive of the multiple voices was endangered years in the making to preserve breath and intellect, imagination's other place as psychic inscription, and to let humans of the future know some of us were not just killing one another. You would never guess, they said. Look at our creation, a perfect simulacrum. And they looked to a time of acquiescence where the populace would be silenced, where the attention span of humans ever waning would ride the waves of mediocrats and tell endlessly, monotonously, the slow drip of the undulating fortunes of celebrity worlds and become even more accustomed and inured to the beat and thrum of war and more in lockdown and more and more in lockdown. There was a decider of the fifth rank of the state of rectilinear space as it applies to a subject's metabolism, decider of how many gold stars on a bonnet, or for one entering the room of major decision-making feeling diminished, there was a decider sitting behind a massive desk of protocol and power, facing windows of gray light in sad, anemic offices over which more deciders preside. Deciders of who lives or stays, who gets laid off, who must be demoted, who closes rank. It was not a happy world. <laughs> um, I love that. So, you know, all of your work has this incredible epic quality, whether it's uh, the length of Gossamer or whether it's the epic squared 
Eovis, you know, to the, uh-huh. to the, to the nth, uh, <laughs> epic by epic. Um, and you, you said something in the workshop the other day, which I thought was so interesting. You basically uh, advised the people there to conceive of or undertake a project that would take at least a year. Yeah. And I was wondering, first of all, if the length of time it took to write Gossamurmur and also where that advice comes from or 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 because uh, it set off a light bulb for me that i was oh, like good. oh yes good good well this took a bit longer and there you know just there was a longer gestation period and notes and i was able to have a sort of brief writing retreat of about a i don't know three weeks which actually helped and sort of could could get the organizing principle behind this particular book together and then um, there was also the research and the travel, and that always seems to come in and be crucial. But I think of, it's a workable situation for a younger writer to figure out a way to, um, you might be writing it for a year, working on it, and then revise and so on. But that you have a project where you, you, know, you try to um, put aside some time. I, you know, I would also re- recommend a, a books that you have around you, things that you're referring to that are, are part of what you're thinking about and meditating on at the time. I mean, it, with this, it wasn't specific books. It was the archive itself. Mm-hmm. There was a struggle going on with the New York Public Library, the, you know, the demolishing of the stacks and the idea of turning it into a, I don't know, a restaurant or a cafe. Um, there was the, you know, wonderful... Um, um, Argana Cafe, uh, there was also the, you know, that had killed, so we had these terrorist acts, and that made you think, because we're in this time, and this is going on, which is why this book still still feels very urgent to me and kind of interesting in light of what continues to go on, but that terrorist act in uh, Morocco at the same time I was working on visiting a, a newly created library of, through Tomas Foundation and others, which was primarily books in Arabic and French and English. Uh, so all around me there was archives kind of coming and going, um, violence, the intervention of the, you know, on the Bamiyan Buddhas, just examples of things really disappearing from this world that seemed to be um, very important uh, artifacts and uh, beautiful instances to let people of the world we were no we were not just killing one another right and so on so that seemed to be the driving uh, vision of the importance why important yes of course it's impermanent you're not hanging on to it because you're going to get rich later or you know whatever you're you're trying to con- continue have some continuum of gnosis some continuum continuum of consciousness through language and song and you know the intellect of in- investigation mm. um so this was, yeah, this was all on my mind all the time. Mm. And likewise with the bigger project, the Yovis project, which was more like a 20-year project. And I think it's Coleridge's quote that I have in the beginning of the book that talks about 10 years for the research, 10 years for the reading, thinking about it, and then 10 years for the writing of it. Mm. So there's, there are different ways you org- can organize your time, or it's all happening simultaneously. I didn't know where this was heading. Uh-huh. I knew it had to have a bit of a plot because I'd set it up this way as an allegory. Did you have like a separate notebook for this? Were you writing mu- multiple it things at mixed. the same time? I uh-huh. tend to be very messy that way and things are going on simultaneously. I'm sure there are you know, pages. There was a lot of um, 
editing and reorganizing and that sort of thing. And I had written the, the last part, which includes the um, you know, same-sex marriage mm-hmm. business, uh, Start from a Murmur of Tears, um, I, and that was a, almost a separate poem at one point. I think I, it, there was an, something coming from, I'm not sure, there was an occasion, there was an assignment for that piece, and it was around the, the roilingness of same-sex marriage. But that felt like a good way to pull some things together and also to, um, you know, archive is not a po- portfolio. This is my poem for now and future lovers. Lover, <laughs> now and future lovers scrolled in my pillow book at dawn. So mm. taking it forward in this idea of um, come here, my weeds, come here, touch this witness, 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 as wilderness is my witness. Take this vow in the wilderness, which is almost over, the will, or could be gone from our world, but the, as a psychological space. So invoking, um, you know, being witness and how things can change. Civility as a cascade is civil. And we are seeing the slow change of uh, mores and more openness towards these things that we've been fighting for, you know, for a number of years in just that area. So there's archive, there's gender equality, there's um, um, other ways, the, the climate change. I mean, this also was a problem having an archive on a floodplain. Mm. So how can you have an archive? You can't technically have an archive. You can't call it an archive if it's on a floodplain. And if, you, you know, your dan- fires can come in and melt things and you have this um, ongoing pollution things are actually still quite unsettled there. Mm-hmm. The, the entire Naropa archive is in a very questionable place, just a holding place, which is not acceptable. Hmm. Wait, let me go back for one second. Yes. Um, so it strikes me that in a very kind of practical way, the, the one effect of writing over the course of a year or 20 years mm-hmm. is that you create a, the continuous present. Exactly. Um, and then on top of that, there is this element to your work, and I don't know how you like to think of it. I, I, are, do you think of yourself as a maximalist, as a radical inclusionist? as a? And what I mean by that is that there are all of these things, right? Like what you're reading, um, the weather, um, the political situation, certainly, um, whether there's a particular assignment that you have in a class, um, where you're traveling. Yes, um, I, I, everything I goes in. Yeah, right. And a lot comes out. Yeah, and a lot, a lot of times I have to, just, you know, make those decisions. What's uh, imbalanced here? So, does do you feel like that um, quality? Because I feel like I, I don't like making binaries, but I do feel like many po- poets are either inclusionists, maximalists, or uh, kind of. Uh, excisers right sorry condensari right and i identify very much with this Mm -hmm. um aspect of your work and i wonder if you feel like it for you is it is it temperamental is it political is it is it or is it i don't know where does it come from in that i do i have this insatiable curiosity i want to include everything it has to do with um you know a view of of where you take your stand in the world in public space how do you include the, you know, your your world, your own intimate world, and so on, and then the world of your mind, and then the world of these bigger, uh, you know, it just keeps mushrooming, mushrooming out. And I like to invoke the 
you know, the Balinese temple with the inner chamber, the secret chamber where they keep the, the dolls are wrapped up in their various wooden boxes and then you, you, know, you bring them out on certain days because you need to expose them to the people. They'll feel like the, the mana of that connection, some kind of shaktipat and, and uh, transmission because when you, you know, I remember going, maybe it was the first time I was in Calcutta and going to the Kaligat temple there and the, um, the uh, Kali figure who's the, you know, demonists on one hand, but also a, 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 you know, an amazingly generative force, but a destructive force, et cetera, et cetera. I think most people would be familiar with the Kali image and Kali energy, particularly through you know, Hindu tradition, but through um, you know, animist tradition and so on. There's always a female a wild monster. So the, um, the Kali temple, they're dolls, essentially, mm. these statues. And they're tended by usually male attendants, and they're washed, and they're clothed, and they're washed again, and they're scented, and have various pujas done over them, and painted, and so on. And they're in the temple, you know, seated, it different it moves around. And then there's a curtain. And so there's all this frenzy building up to see the Kali, mm. to have the Kali unveiled. And you're, you know, waiting. And then this curtain is pulled, and it's like, whoa! <laughs> it's like a rocket taking off and you get that blast and then she and then it's gone huh. and you wonder did it ever I mean you can sit with various images of course and all in many traditions but there's this particular times and occasions where it's it builds up and it's that seeing and encountering the the doll I like to call them the dolls um, that's so fantastic and interesting how an object can be, you know, so much can be projected on huh. to it that it, it does have uh, power. So anyway, the, the temple where you, you, it's the inside thing, the work you're doing inside with your mind and your imagination, your visualization, and then you're moving into a more median space where you're getting closer to connecting the uh, heaven and earth or connecting to these different aspects and different layers and so on uh, of the of the cosmos and then you actually come back in a way to relative time when you step into that public space and you you deliver you know mm -hmm. that's your vocation in a way uh, that's what you're there to do is to work this magic between these different realms between your own consciousness and creating a, an image or a sound that that also carries some of that mm. can't carry it all but there's so much that goes into that you want to include everything there's you know something called fire puja where you throw everything in the fire everything that's love the most everything that's most beloved you you know that's a, mm. a it could be a yearly practice or whatever what psychologically you're not throwing your beautiful um lamp, your beautiful computer, beautiful <laughs> library. Um, well, I guess ritual has something to do with that. Ritual where you, you know, you try to include everything and then you, and I remember my first LSD trip was very much like the opening vis visualization for when you become a um, uh, refugee, when you take refuge. Hmm. And it's, you visualize everybody you've ever known, your whole family, their families, their dogs, their plants, their, and everybody you've ever known it just grows bigger and bigger and bigger and then all the people you don't know but hmm. you might see in your uh, 
blood, you know, wanderings and people in consociational time who you share places with, you see the same baker or the same teacher, and then you move it out to people you've known and what, and just grows and grows and grows. And then at the middle, you know, you're kind of holding it together and you're sort of looking into the darkness of your time and you're saying, what? Okay, well, I've got, I've got it all here in my mind. We're all ready to make it better. Uh-huh. <laughs> and then you, you sort of take, you bow and prostrate on behalf of all these people and, and to all others who were once our very own parents. Mm. So you invoke this, what's called Pratityat Samutpada, the interconnectedness. It's the great rhizome. It's the great um, Indra's net of... Um, and it's hard to do. You also have to take on your enemy. Mm-hmm. I remember when I was first doing it, it was like Richard Nixon. I mean, these people I just don't even want in my mind. You know, and you have to include also in your big part, big-hearted compassion, these what you consider to be, to be people you consider to be enemies. It seems like I just had this this image, which is sort of helpful to me, which is that some people. Uh, are trying to write the poem that is the Kali um, or the vision of something, like the 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 revealed, yes, you know, the yes, thing that you right. see when the curtain opens. And I feel like your work feels like entering the temple with it into the space that includes all of history and the future and the thing that you're seeing, everything you're hearing and feeling, and all of the human expectation mm-hmm. so every the, the experience yeah. really yeah. as instead of the object uh-huh. right yeah um do you st- just curiously do you um do you still use drugs or substances as part of your journey to get into this mind space or this uh, investigation. I don't know if it's used with that intention, but and I not very mu- not mm-hmm. very often, but I did um, had an ayahuasca uh, experience and a you know ritual one night mm-hmm. that resulted in a book called Jaguar Harmonics, mm-hmm. and uh, that was very helpful. It was also very challenging at you know in this body at this time and with everything going on. I tend to even a little marijuana makes me think big you know big mm-hmm. and I have to go so I want to call people I haven't talked to in 20 years and I want to solve this problem and resolve something and tie up this loose karma mm-hmm. and then I want to bond with others and create some new project and it's just too generative I almost can't oh, contain it 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 always always seems like it's going to be more vision and more wanting to make this and that happen it's kind of overwhelming and I've you know I've tried to Put a rain on it, but the I think the ayahuasca was very much an earth trip. Mm. It, it was um, you feel well traditionally it's Pachamama, Mother Earth, and so on. But they're you know they're definite with the v- things that go on hallucinogenically and so on. But the um, the this message of we don't like fracking mm. that was one of the messages and. Uh, and you what you feeling you feel like you have to go to these whatever it is that the chemistry does to your head to get access uh, these compassionate places where um, the your environment is trying to tell you something you have to listen to mm. your environment listen to the animals listen to these other and I think this is what what it's about and so you're connected through 
who knows the double helix I, I mean the, the serpents you're talking with you know you're talking with animals you're learning and it's wisdom it's not just how what did you do today and mm. are there other rituals that you find yourself using over and over again more recently that are less overwhelming but that's still not through entheogens yeah i no, i meant no. even just um oh gosh i mean well there's some certain... people use self-hypnosis oh, some I people see what you're yeah. walk some people yeah. uh right on airplanes yes, yes. So, like i'm wondering yeah, i don't know if i think of them is you know constantly i'm always writing on an airplane whenever i travel sometimes uh -huh. i have to read or s s write a scholarly text uh-huh <laughs> no um but yeah yeah definitely all those things that you're you, you it's available to you wherever you are in whatever kind of situation dharma gates are endless i've out every one of them that means i've got to be attentive go and be there witness in, mm -hmm. in whatever way one can i mean sometimes it's not even caught up with making work making art that's not the point um but at rituals some of the experiments of attention that i like to use in workshops and with myself i try to do them myself like the hidden and revealed yeah that that's a kind of meditation and you think about the day what was revealed in this day what was hidden what did you learn what uh, new knowledge of this uncovering of the, you know, whatever this scandal is we're in the middle of, which is so unseen, which you already know in a way, you've already, it's very familiar. Uh, but then how do you, how do you relate to that? It's a way of how to find where you are in relation to these, these things through your, um, you know, your thinking, your, your, what you see when you're thinking about this stuff and what com what language comes to you and how to translate it if it needs to be translated sometimes i don't i'm after finishing trickster feminism which is work that coalesced during this year of infinite protest mm -hmm. um and months i mean more than a year it's been it's been ongoing with this particularly hard uh time because you feel it's a lot closer to home you feel responsible you're 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 sh ashamed you're um and you feel you're you don't have enough power in it, and it, you know it's made me question the whole safety nets around um, the political process about how one is can even get a job, mm -hmm. um, and how that I don't know if I that's being thought of how to really revise this maybe holders working on it I'm not sure. And trickster feminism is about to come out, yes, right? Yes, it's coming out in July. Well, so probably by the end I, of June. I got to read it in the galleys, which oh, was very exciting. Oh, good, good. Yes. Well, it's discrete pieces, but they're interlock. You know, mm -hmm. they're interrelated, and um, like all your work, I mean, they're, yeah, probably. <laughs> well, I like doing. I'm more comfortable with the one poem book, uh -huh. which can be in parts and can be more like a serial poem. And they, these are connected, but I, I, they're too short. Some of these pieces. <laughs> interesting uh, and um, and I didn't want to just be raging all the time so I tried to work there's some you know puns there are all these puns on on female poet names I don't know if you noticed that's at the end that section was a lot was now really fun. I don't have it with me because I got it on my computer um, I, I don't know if have you have any yeah I think I have it do here. you want to read a little bit of that sure so we can hear it um, The cover is great, by the way. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I brought this photo back. A friend of mine had from um, it's from a 64 Yogini temple in India, mm. 
and you know they have these great animal heads but i like the playfulness of the yeah. rabbit yes and then there's the rabbit in the moon and so on um well i have these this is i'll just read the list where does it start um uh my veil lifts Set us in new light with old and modernist ancestors. A veil lifts. May all thinkers and mystics abound. A vie to see and moan. Um, a vie to see and moan. Simone de Vie. Every ever circle around a name. Christine de Pizan, an appeasement. Greek crown, a winter. Mirabai. Sorwana. Sorwan I. After bin. Um um caliph's tomb. Um al Kalsum, a tongue is a tongue, wall, stone, craft, volt, a ring, declare, moans, veil from young grave again, Amelie, girt intrudes and lays, lay, be Elias, girt intrudes and lay, beings all grounded to this task, move sentry a few inches, stein is stone, lore rinds the subaltress, mar, I'm sorry, mar, rien, moored, an old linguistic stew, old tray lured, audio loud, wren a line over Brooks, Gwendolyn Brooks, Barb a guest, not to bury, died Anne's deeds prime, kayaker sure, louder back, ask a verger, may may burst in brooch, brooch, I can't even do it, may may burst in brooch, hold esteem, mean alloy, am carsome, marabout, Bernadette, Renew a glad knot, jar knot, not all lease, a not lease, ona bugeshi, that's a character in a um, kabuki. Woe mean, clawed in rankin, suit up, feet forward in the maelstrom, entanglement, plaintive dawn song, alba alba, parting poets, bid adieu, missing you, seeing you in a leaf, a shell, Carolee's knee. Yiwan Rainer, so Carolee Schneeman, Yvonne Rainer, so some of the great heroes of my life. Eileen Miles, Norbay, a seep full up. Hmm. Norbay, Norbay, seep full up. So that was fun. I could, you know, enjoy that, but a lot, I had to curtail some of the um, rage, and, you know, I wanted to be this uh, sort of feminine power that could. Turn it all around quickly, and then I, you know, and then I found myself feeling more like an assassin. If you just give me the, tell me, my, give me my assignment. <laughs> Why <laughs> so was, was it important to you at that moment in this book to invoke those women? Um, and it to me, it's also another form of mantra. Exactly. Um, yeah. Yeah. But no, that's very true. Invoke them, name them, but name them coded in a way, and also trickster energy you know tricks on it punning mm -hmm. which is so much fun and just amassing them getting them into the you know the uh power structure here mm. to um because i think that that's also the you know patriarchy is so exposed more than ever and uh the struggle continues it's more and more is getting and you don't want it to die you're afraid that you know it'll be preempted by some other thing and all that's very manipulated as we know and um yeah, were they, were my... they, are they coming more in that moment to help you, to help the reader, or or to create kind of like almost, I almost imagine well, it as sound, like an explosion um, of yeah. power. 
Right. Well, the mantra is mind protecting. That's what mantra is. Mantra uh -huh. it can be there. It's basically nonsense syllables. It's not that the the actual syllables have a the, the word the semantic value is the most important thing. It's that it's that sound. So yes, you build this wall of sound and, and of these this gathering, especially poet women. Mm. So that was fun, yeah. fun to do, and it was uh, helping me get get through it. I mean, there are also some puns on. Hitler and um, some of the despots. Mm -hmm. One point, that, so that you get, you can deconstruct them in a way. You can take apart their names. You take them apart. You can, you know, call them out. Exposure. So all these were themes that play in this book, and some of them are more oral than others. There, I bring out my, you know, various writing experiments from cut up to. There's one uh, in there that's an ongoing cut up that I started a few years ago out of. Brian Geisen's Let the Mice In with Burroughs and Geisen. And so I want to go back to something you said a little while ago. Um, you said that um, the pieces in Trickster Feminism some, some felt a little short to you or, or that's <laughs> not your normal mode. I wanted to ask you what in the world did it feel like when you were writing Eovis for 20 years, I know you were doing many other things at the same time, but then to have written this book, I mean, there are very few people in the history of the world who have written a uh, trilogy that is over a thousand pages long, um, to have a book that you literally, as you said, can't travel with. <laughs> uh, when people ask you to read, how do you, you know, how do you even read a selection because it's you know part of right, it is right. that it's this this monumental mosaic yeah. thing i mean you know so how does it feel to have written this i loved that period my son was five when it started i guess around and i was writing it for him and for his uh generation i mean big you know big ambitious thoughts about that that would help them see where we where we had been um i was uh be, you know, very much aware being, a, I think I might not have started it had I not been a mother at that time. Mm. Um, and then through his, you know, he's a part of it. He's the, the guide in a way, taking me into, you know, um, computer games and these arc, penny arcades and gambling houses in Japan. So, it, you know, tracking our lives in a way together. And then all this investigative work and the travel and whatever the current you know, political situation is, and then it's very much montaged, you know, interrupted text. I was writing to people about their, early on, to various guys about their first sexual experience and um, and who they identified with, and that letter from Clark Coolidge comes mm. back where he's identifying with Donald Duck, <laughs> <laughs> and, and the, you know, the or maybe he's identifying with the nephews, but anyway. Um, so these great responses, Joe Brainerd was alive. So it was also a way of carrying my community and then people have passed on since, but they're in that, in my, in this fabric of the, of the book. Um, I was excited to be in the, it was like the Eovis gaze every, for that long span of time, there was always something coming up that would work in the, that I thought could be added, another thread could be added. And, um, you know, there are points where I had to figure out what goes where. I didn't want it to be strictly, you know, literally uh, um, A to Z. Mm -hmm. So there were interruptions on that. And then when I, when I went to, when I had been in Vietnam in 2000, yes, come in. Hi. 
Hi. so mysterious. I don't know. Sorry, it was left away for a meeting. Yes, downstairs. It's happening. It's happening? No, it's going to be happening. Yeah. Come on in. Yeah, yeah. Do you know Hi. Rachel Zucker? No, no, no. no. Okay. We're just doing a little interview. Hi. This is Nicole Parafit and Pierre Juris. Hi. No, no, no. They're down. They're so maybe I'll just just to finish this yeah, question yeah. about Eovis. Um, I think for some people it might seem counterintuitive that the maternal imagination um, would be inspired and capable to write such a long book. To me, this makes a lot of sense. If I think about Midwinter Day, mm -hmm. if I think about um, Alice Notley's work, if I think about like a certain kind of maternal um, moment of inclusion, interruption, the, and this idea, did you use the phrase Eovis gaze? Yeah, the gaze. Yes. So I was seeing everything through the gaze of the poem and what would work for the poem and what was needed for the poem and what adventures and details and what I needed to get more on and, and whose voices I wanted to include. And, and then the process of putting it together was very much like montage work, like editing a film at, at and points. And it seems like it lasted for your son's basically childhood <laughs> and adolescence until he was like 25, yeah. right? Yeah. Wow, yep. wow. So I'm thinking there are parts in here that I consider book four. Of, of trickster Eobus, feminism. Of trickster feminism, uh -huh. a, a section called Malpomene. And they were a little bit, when I was, you know, one was maybe a year and a half ago, just gestating, they felt like this could be an Eobus, but I wasn't thinking of, uh, and also the, the, the um, method or the shape or the, genre of the epic actually suits me to this also this time that go as yeah. long as we're in this so that'll be you know it'll be a smaller side um, maybe it's the coda a large coda oh, we'll see that. where it goes we'll okay. see where it goes and the, the other section is called I think it's the maybe it's the trickster feminism section and what are you working on right now well I'm uh, a book that was completed by this extraordinary printer uh, David Sellers. It's called, um, it's Pydox and Press. It's called Extinction Aria. So mm -hmm. it's an object that's become a book. So I was caught up with that. That that came out at the New Year, but we're presenting it so people can look at the book. I have one copy up there maybe I'll bring down. So that, um, a somebody's doing a very small edition of my song lyrics. So I'm uh -huh. just revisiting that. So I'm collecting things. And then Coffee House will do a book of talks and I put together a loose um, manuscript, so I'll hopefully have some time this summer to work on that and work with one of their editors. I need advice, there's like 400 pages wow. to sift through and really pare down. You know, I wish I was a little more awake. There's so much more to say oh about my God. The, the, these, te these texts and their process. I feel, I, I think I'm sounding so simplistic. There's so much more to, well, it's, you're anyway. Not, you're not sounding simplistic at all, but it's very, it, it, I think that you and your work are not easily, uh, ex you know, sim up. simplified. It's not simple. Well, it'd be fun to go through this. I'm so honored that you, oh my goodness, it's so heavy. You know, just to talk about some of the, every move, its rhythm interpolated, interrupted, dejected is the child's. Each sound I wrote is his, for he was my music. 
It was mm -hmm. day, it was night, it was his between sucking sounds. You call it like nattering, bird-like small body were, who is a woman not were in her association, her miraculous conjunct with baby. I wrote years later, it's a dancing symbiosis, a polysemous world. I was not mother Taliban. And the first speech is of hot of fire, of hot of fire. Mm. The mouth moves inside its mind of every word to ever come late and later advocate, boy, boy, that would be man, could be the first word, breakdown, held then, rocking, sucking, interrupting, segments of sheer joy, the gaps between intent and how he becomes every child on any continent. Then in the middle, I, myself, defending I, myself, the little house. I was not Mother Taliban. Three gates or jade residues descend further than deep off scanner into deep jade. So jade hue is more than texture, more than shape and hand, more than you bargained for if you ever could. Maybe I myself did once in Vietnam. Jade is the condition for prayer. Mm. And there's a later, I think something about the Taliban and how they didn't have mothers. Mm -hmm. And so they didn't have mother love. And there was a lot of the, early, the first... Um, leaders were, you know, maimed and, you know, their whole world had been distorted. Are there recordings of you? Reading? There's different, I don't know if that I've ever read that aloud, that part. Um, somebody tried with book one, and I think it was book one, I think I read all of that for some performance. Whether those tapes exist, I have no idea. So that was my conversation with Ann Waldman, and now a short excerpt of my conversation with Kaba Akbar, which I had at Poet's House on May 2nd, 2018. At this point in the conversation, Kava had just read his poem, Heritage, and we are discussing ethical problems in poetry. Uh, we had just discussed um, Kenneth Goldsmith, and um, after the excerpt that you hear, I read my poem, and still I speak of it, which is also in the anthology Women of Resistance. The entire conversation will be available to patrons. But no, I mean, I think that there is a kind of rigorous empathy incumbent upon anyone who wishes to write about what they observe in the world, right? Um, and that empathy isn't just something that starts and stops on the page, right? This is something that you have to carry with you in your day-to-day -day life, right? This kind of rigorous compassion, you know, this kind of like, you know, we are, we, I'm saying we, I, I don't mean to speak in the first person plural, I am a poet. My, my job is to observe people, right? Um, I think that in the ways that I think that even observation, you know, we know this from physics, right? Like ob observing a thing changes the action of the thing. So there are ways to observe compassionately and there are ways to observe uh, in ways that are very sort of like anthropological and very kind of mercenary, right? Um, and I think that being engaged in the practice of taking inventory of myself and taking inventory of like, where have I been less than compassionate where mm. where did i miss an opportunity to be to uh bend towards grace you know um you know it's horizontal right we will never arrive at the point in which all of our actions are perfectly compassionate and you know shining and radiant and full of grace right um but i think that it is the it is the march that we have to no matter how tired we are no matter who's watching we kind of have to always be like poking ourselves in the ass you know to like you know, I don't know, I'm, I, I'm, in my head I'm imagining like a mule going up a mountain <laughs> or something like that, and you kind of have to like, 
I mean, what do you? Well, I, I want to hear. Yeah. Maybe maybe this is a good time for you to read. Okay. Um, and then we'll. we'll I'll just I'll throw one thing out there. there in response to what you were saying, um, which I think it, I think is a you know part of what I learn um, from the story of this poem for you is that. In this particular case, um, the formal there was a formal problem that mm -hmm. was also an ethical problem, and that it was partially solved by you putting yourself in the poem. Mm -hmm. And I think it's a it's this is something uh, that is important for me to say in terms of the poem I'm about to read, which is, you know, one of the things that I've been thinking a lot about is um, the way in which women in particular are a little bit in a bind because if you write about yourself. Um, you are accused of narcissism and um, navel-gazing, and um, if you write about yourself um, and you write about your privilege, um, it can also be very alienating um, to people. If you, if you ignore your own privilege, then you are unaware of your privilege, which mm -hmm. is a huge problem. If you write about someone else, then you, you are immediately gonna have certain ethical problems. And if you write uh, an erasure or a persona poem or any kind of poem in which you are perhaps a poetry of witness in which you are speaking through someone else, perhaps someone who doesn't have a voice or who can't speak, you run the risk of appropriation, um, which is another ethical problem. So um, I think that the, the only thing that feels slightly gendered to me is that the solution or the partial solution that was open to you about um, including your positionality um, and, and sort of being uh, uh, putting yourself in the poem and implicating yourself. That's also a solution that, that, that I um, engage in very much. Yeah. But I, I do find that um, women are often um, taken to task for that. Yeah. Um, can, I, can I add, I, I think that that's absolutely correct. And can I also add that um, I've, been, I've started doing this thing in readings um, now because there's there's this kind of comment that I get sometimes. So again, I wrote a book about um, addiction <coughs> and recovery, and it, it, you know, I'm it is, you know, I'm not, you know, it's I'm not painted in a particularly flattering light in the book. Um, and so oftentimes at readings or during Q and A's or stuff like that, people will talk to me about, um, you know, the book being so brave or you know the the, the book being so honest. You know, mm -hmm. like like there are these sorts of like there are these sorts of words that are used to describe my book. And I think it has, and this is something that I've begun to talk about at Q&As and stuff like that when it is addressed to me. There's a way in which I am receiving credit for something that has nothing to do with me, which is to say like the expectations of a cis man is that I would be like stoic or reserved mm -hmm. or, you know, not, 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 you know, talking about you know, pissing the bed or feeling very sad and lonely all the time, or you know what I mean. Like there's the, there's this expectation that I wouldn't talk about these things because of how people read who I am. Right? It has nothing to do with anything that I've written. Whereas if a woman or a non-binary person were to write about many of these same things, they would be accused of being sentimental or emotional uh, or you know confessional and right. all of that, all of the weird problematic sparks that fly off that word. You know. Um, uh, and there is a way in which I am receiving praise for writing the exact same shit that, like, you or, I mean, any number of people are, 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 you know, I feel very, very much simpatico with any number of women writers who have been called these things. You know, I think of William Logan's famous terrible review of, I mean, any woman poet, but especially his re review of Sharon Olds, right? Yeah. Uh, 
you know, and there's a way in which we're engaged, we're doing the exact same thing. She's doing it much better than I'm doing it, but uh, you know, but we're doing the exact same thing. But I'm called brave and honest, right? right. Uh, because I have a beard, you know. Right. Um, <laughs> <laughs> anyways. This has been Commonplace, Conversations with Poets and Other People. You just heard an excerpt from my conversation with Kava Akbar, and before that, my conversation with Ann Waldman. Commonplace producers are Christine LaRusso, Nicholas Fuenzalita, and James Ciano. Our advisor in all things is Daniel Schiffman. Music written and performed by Moses Zucker-Gorin. Many thanks to Penguin and New Directions Books, to Danielle Barnhart and Iris Mahan, to Adelphi University's MFA program, to Poets House, and to Kava Akbar. Thank you to all our patrons. You make Commonplace possible. And thank you, listener. Thank you for listening.